The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to week two of our study of the book of Acts. Uh, Over the course of this summer and then again in the new year, we want to walk through the entire book. And we're going to kind of take it episode by episode, covering roughly one chapter every week. And so that's kind of our game plan. And what are we trying to do with our study of the book of Acts? Well, we talked about this last week, that our intention is to help you go from being a spectator into what the Holy Spirit has done to be a participant in what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so in this course, we want to take a deep dive through the frame into uh, first century uh, church to get a sense of the dynamics, get a feel for how the Holy Spirit worked then, so that coming back to our own time, we can get a sense of what we can look for the Holy Spirit to do in our day. And so this is our story. The book of Acts is the beginning of the Christian church of which we are a part. And we are kind of studying this so that we can really appreciate not just what God did to get the church started, but how he wants to work in and through us to continue uh, the Christian mission. Now last week, um, I gave you kind of a a sheet that looked like this. It's kind of a structure of the book of Acts. It's gonna be kind of our roadmap to the book as we kind of move through uh, the narrative that Luke has provided us with. And uh, today and next week, we are going to be looking at the introductory part, verses 1-1 to uh, 2-41, which is really kind of the setup for the mission to the Jewish world. And then uh, about halfway through, we kind of transition into the mission to the Gentile world. So that's kind of where we are. That's where we are today. And so we're starting right off the beginning uh, in Acts 1. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to it um, or look up on your phone. Uh, You may find a Bible on your table. But in any case, feel free to kind of follow along as we get into Acts chapter 1. And so Acts chapter 1 is really the overlapped chapter between Luke 24 and what Luke is gonna talk about in this new book. Uh, I'm calling it the beginning of the mission, if you're following along on your outline. It's the preparation for Pentecost. It's everything that took place from, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead until he ascends to be with his father and what comes in the aftermath. And so chapter one of Acts is kind of an introduction to the long-term mission of the church. And here Luke gives a recap to get started of the 40 days following the resurrection where Jesus prepared the disciples for the mission ahead. Then he covers the period between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And if you're following along on your outline, here's what goes in the first blank. Luke is going to emphasize that Jesus Christ remains central to the life of the church, the teaching of the church, and the missionary work of the church. That is going to be the point that he wants to establish above all. And so here's how the book begins. Luke writes, in my former book, Theophilus, and again, we don't know who Theophilus was, uh, but he wrote with him in mind to give him an accurate account of what took place in the early church. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who he had chosen. In his gospel, Luke records what 
Jesus Christ began to do and teach after his resurrection. And the implication here is that that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What would happen in the book of Acts would be the continuation of Jesus' ministry. His use of all doesn't mean absolutely every detail of Jesus' ministry, but he wants to include those things that encapsulize his core message. And so that's where he begins. In anticipation of that ongoing ministry, Jesus, through the Spirit, gave instructions to the disciples that he had chosen. And so the Holy Spirit was present in enabling the disciples to understand and to follow through on Jesus' instruction. Luke kind of dismisses this with just a few verses here at the beginning of Acts, but we know from the Gospels that there was a lot of activity that took place in the 40 days after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so during that period of time, it was Jesus' opportunity to help the apostles connect the dots between what they had understood about what God had intended in terms of his redemptive plan and how the world now is different as God's new covenant people. The word order is a little awkward here, but what Luke wants to show us is that Jesus gave the apostles a mandate to witness, a mandate that would be enabled by the Holy Spirit who is going to come has a consequence of Jesus going. So if you're filling in your blank, the whole idea is that the coming of the Holy Spirit was a consequence of Jesus going to be with his Father. Now the word apostles appears here for the very first time in the book of Acts, and it refers to somebody who is commissioned and sent with news. An apostle is kind of like an emissary who represents the one who sent him and acts in the best interest of the one who has sent them. And in Acts, it's used to describe the 12. It's also applied to Paul and Barnabas a little bit later. Jesus' ascension to God's throne concludes his earthly ministry and inaugurates his new covenant ministry to be carried out, this is what goes in the blank, by the apostles. And so we go into that next section in verse 3 after uh, Luke has introduced what is about to happen, and we read these words. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Only uh, Luke, uh, the book of Acts, kind of records the 40 days. Over 40 days where he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Luke recounts here that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples for 40 days, helping them to connect the dots. The kingdom of God was the subject of his teaching, it appears six times in the book of Acts, two times here at the beginning and two times at the end. And the notion is that the kingdom of God refers to the spiritual rule of God that transforms lives and cultures through the Holy Spirit. Not an earthly or a military kingdom, as many people had thought. And during these 40 days, Jesus appeared to the apostles and others to help them understand what was going to be the nature of this new kingdom ministry, this proclamation of the gospel and the importance of the Holy Spirit to what was going to take place. The promise of the Father, that phrase is significant in that it is the fulfillment both of Old Testament prophecy and what Jesus had already promised earlier in the book of Luke. 
And so Jesus foretold that this promised empowering was coming, and he directed the disciples to wait for this in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was going to be absolutely essential to everything else that was going to take place. And so Jesus was saying here, listen, don't leave home without him. You will be baptized with the Spirit clearly anticipates the Pentecost moment that we'll talk about next week. And baptism and the Holy Spirit are going to be closely associated throughout the book of Acts. John taught that there was a difference between a baptism for repentance in the River Jordan and the baptism that Jesus would bestow, which would be a baptism of the Spirit. And the connection that Luke makes here is that in the same way that John immersed people in water physically, Jesus would immerse his followers in the Holy Spirit spiritually. And so the Holy Spirit is the power of God's presence, and here's what goes in the blank, promised and provided by Jesus the Messiah for the life and ministry of the apostles and of the church. And so Jesus then goes on to commission his disciples, beginning in Acts verse 6, and this is what he writes. He says, Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So at the end of the 40 days, Jesus takes the disciples to the Mount of Olives and visibly ascends, physically ascends before them, but not before giving the disciples the commission to be witnesses. And so Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, really sets the stage, is really the theme for what goes on in the rest of the book. Now it's interesting in verse 6 that the disciples wanted to know, is this the moment that the messianic kingdom is going to arrive? And that kind of lets us know that they were still kind of expecting the restoration of a military and political kingdom that would throw out the Romans and restore Israel. All of this talk of the new kingdom and of the Holy Spirit had kind of fired up their imagination, but they still had in mind a political theocracy after the Old Testament pattern. And so they were still holding on to some of those old nationalistic hopes. But Jesus tells them in verse 7 that God the Father is sovereign over all of the events of history, and it was time to revise their thinking and get in step with God's new redemptive program. Their task, if you're following along in your outline, their task will not be speculation, but it will be proclamation. It won't be speculation, it will be proclamation. And so Jesus answers their question, really, by giving them a job to do. He gives them a commission. And what Jesus says here is going to be the thrust of all uh, that Luke has to say in this book. Jesus explains to his disciples that they would participate in an entirely new kind of kingdom that would empower and conquer, not by might, but, this is what goes in the blank, by the Spirit, not by military conquest, but by the spreading of the good news of the gospel. That was going to be their commission. They were going to advance a kingdom by the Spirit, not by military conquest, but by spreading the good news of the gospel. And it was going to be the Holy Spirit that was going to empower this campaign that was going to sweep around the world to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth. It just, the circle keeps extending and extending like Rickles and Pond. It goes further and further and further and influences more and more people in more and more places. 
It's a matter of debate whether the experience of the Holy Spirit that the disciples knew was Old Testament in its nature, or did Jesus usher in the New Testament relationship with the Spirit when he breathed on his disciples in the book of John? That's debatable by scholars. But what is clear is this, is that the mission, the proclamation of the kingdom, the gospel, would require a special working of the Holy Spirit that was unprecedented in their experience to date. And this new power would manifest itself in new confidence, new effectiveness in preaching, um, uh, victory over demonic forces, miracles, and love for one another that transcended all the old cultural boundaries. It was a mission that would be worldwide in scope. And so the apostles are Jesus' witnesses to both believers and unbelievers. Their ministry would be far-reaching and far-ranging. And having given them instructions and having told them to wait in Jerusalem for this power that would enable them to carry out his ongoing mission, Jesus then ascends. And so we pick this up in verse 9 where it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Interesting. After he had requested and readjusted their focus, Jesus literally invisibly, physically ascends into heaven until a cloud kind of envelops him and hides him from view. Now, on one hand, there are some scholars that sort of feel that this wasn't an ordinary cloud, but it was a cloud of God's glory. Other scholars said it could have just been an ordinary cloud. In any case, it, ex uh, it signified that the rules had changed and that Jesus would not be making any more immediate appearances like he had done for 40 days. And what happens here also indicates that Jesus retained his glorified physical body after the resurrection and that he's going to return someday in that same glorified physical body at the end of time. And as he currently rules at his father's right hand, he is right now in nature fully God and fully man perpetually. But more important, the ascension underlines that the missionary activity of the church would depend upon Jesus' living presence and his active direction. Jesus living physically from the earth, his leaving physically, and this is what goes in the next blank, did not remove him. It did not remove him from practically leading the mission on earth. And the work he began in Luke's gospel, he would continue through the church in the book of Acts. And the promise here is that he will return to complete what he began. And as they stood looking up into the sky, uh, a pair of angels, I think that's what dressed in white is referring to, kind of lets them know what's going on. Now keep in mind that nobody among the apostles had ever seen anything like what they just witnessed. But the angels tell the disciples that they would be coming back again, that Jesus would be coming back again in the same manner that he had just left. His return would be bodily, it will be visible, and in the meantime, they had a job to do. I'd like us to kind of take a break right here and kind of talk about this question. How have you experienced the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life personally? I mean, if somebody was to take you to a street corner and put a microphone in front of you and say, listen, could you kind of explain to me how the Holy Spirit has made a difference for you? 
around your tables for the next five minutes or so, I'd like everyone to have a chance to share, well, how has the Holy Spirit made a difference in my life? Where have I seen him work? And you may have had a significant and rich experience, or maybe your experience with the Holy Spirit is new. Maybe you've never even thought of having a, Holy, uh, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. But for the next five minutes or so, maybe a little longer, I'd just like you to kind of focus on that issue. How has the Holy Spirit made a difference in my life, in your life? Okay, let's pick up the narrative in uh, chapter, I mean, chapter 1, verse 12. Now the disciples decide that they're actually going to follow through on Jesus' instructions and gather in Jerusalem. And so we read this in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. A Sabbath day's walk was just as far as you could walk on the Sabbath without it being considered work, probably about a kilometer. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So in response to Jesus' instructions, the disciples returned to Jerusalem, but a Sabbath day's journey away. And once they get back to Jerusalem, they gather in, some versions call it the upper room, the room, um, probably an upper level to kind of give them some privacy from the traffic on the street. And um, they are just basically following the last instructions that they receive from Jesus. They don't really, at this particular point, really know what to expect, but they know they're to expect something. And so it probably would have been a room that was familiar to all of them, perhaps the location of the Last Supper, we don't really know. But all of the 11 apostles were named as being present, but the gathering also included the women who ministered to Jesus and also witnessed the crucifixion in the empty tomb. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. Uh, Jesus' brothers, uh, Mary's other children are there as well. Mark mentions these four, at least, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon. And they met together and were united in prayer and were awaiting the promise of the Father as Jesus directed them to do. And so in recapping quickly, what the carefully constructed introduction of Acts does for us is this. It establishes the inseparable connection between Luke and Acts. It also reminds us as readers that the suffering, death, and ascension of Jesus is significant for the ministry of the apostles, the life of the church, and the spread of the gospel. This introduction emphasizes that the central role of the Holy Spirit is going to be absolutely critical to what the church is going to be and what the church is going to do. It underlines the apostles' call to be witnesses called by Jesus and empowered by his spirit. And it also sets out the geographical scope of the church's ministry and influence. It establishes the span of ministry that would extend from Jesus' ascension until his return. And finally, it identifies the fellowship of Jesus' followers as the 11, soon to be 12, and others, Jesus' earthly families and women, that was the initial group, the 120, that eventually will catch up with in um, the upper room again in the first part of Acts chapter 2. There's kind of a transition now when we kind of move into another phase. They've gathered together in Jerusalem, they've gathered together in the prayer, they're waiting for the promise of the Father, what Jesus had promised to come to pass, and in the meantime, they have to deal with a very practical issue that uh, comes up, and Peter is the one who draws their attention to it. 
So the big idea in this next session is that the identity of the church as the people of God is tied to the 12 as a symbolic representatives of a restored Israel and God's restored kingdom. Keep this in mind. The mission of this new covenant community was witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but there was a continuity between the work that God began after the fall and what is going to take place now in the book of Acts. And so in this next section, uh, with Peter's guidance and direction and everybody's cooperation, they replace the missing apostle. And so in verse 16, we pick up the story in those days, Peter, who increasingly became the spokesman, especially for these first next few uh, chapters of the book of Acts, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested him. He was one of our number and he shared our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men among us who have been with us the whole time Jesus was living with us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. Well, this is kind of an interesting passage, and all kinds of scholars have sort of wondered, you know, what's going on here? How did Peter make this leap from a couple of verses in the book of Psalms to uh, this whole idea of replacing Judas, the missing uh, apostle. And I kind of want to help you kind of coach you through understanding that. So G uh, Peter steps up at this particular point as the leader of the group. He's a prominent in these first few chapters. And uh, he makes the connection between the loss of Judas uh, as one of the 12 and what David had been inspired by the Spirit to say some 1,000 years previously. Now, on one hand, you could just simply argue that the Holy Spirit prompted him to make this connection and case closed. But Peter may have actually been more involved than that. He might have been applying the Old Testament to false companions or wicked men in general, and specifically to Judas. In any case, this connection comes as a result of the prayerful attention of those gathered to wait on God. And so Peter acknowledges that Judas had a full participation in the ministry of the 12 under Jesus' supervision. He was involved when people were being healed. He was involved when demons were being um, thrown out. He was involved when people were raised from the dead. He was involved uh, in the boat where Jesus calmed the storm. Judas had a full participation in the ministry of the 12 apostles. He was one of them. Now, the direction that he took uh, under the influence of the devil is absolutely um, heartbreaking. But the fact is, Peter says, listen, he was one of us. He was one of the 12. Uh, he needs to have his place filled. Now, there are some people who would use this next text to argue for contradictions in the Bible. Uh, so uh, we know that the authorities purchased this field with the blood money they gave to Jesus for betraying Jesus. 
Uh, this was money that he later returned and filled with remorse. And so they bought the field in, Jesus, uh, in Judas's name with the money that was his. Uh, sometimes there's a discrepancy over, you know, did Judas buy the field or did the um, leaders buy the field and they sort of set that up as a contradiction. Actually, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. The leaders bought the field with the money that they gave to Judas and Judas gave back to them, so they kind of bought it in his name. Secondly, the Gospels indicates both that Judas hanged himself, but he 